You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Revelation. Here's Nate. We turn in our final study of the second section of the book of Revelation to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 through 22, Jesus' letter to the church in Laodicea. Now, as a simple reminder, as we study the book of Revelation, it is good to be reminded that the book of Revelation is the only book that comes with its own divine outline. Chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus told John to write the things that he had seen. That's Revelation chapter 1. The things which are, the things which were current for John, the things which are, were the letters to the churches in Asia Minor, Revelation 2 and 3. These were seven literal churches that existed during the time of John. And then write the things which will take place after this or after these things. And that's where we'll go in chapter 4, verse 1, where John will write, After these things I looked. And behold, and so chapter 4 all the way through chapter 22 are the things which will take place after these things. And so most of the book of Revelation is yet future in my view, okay? And so I'm teaching this obviously from a literal, chronological, futurist perspective. And of course, it goes without saying that there are many wonderful people throughout Christianity who do not hold this particular view of the book of Revelation. They are wonderful, good, godly people. And one day we'll meet the Lord and we'll see, you know, the error in all of our prophetic views. And we will be in fellowship with one another forever and ever and ever throughout all of eternity. And there will be great joy and gladness and harmony between us. But I am teaching the book of Revelation from a futurist, uh, literal, chronological perspective. And as I've stated before, I really truly believe that this view of the book of Revelation is the only view of the book of Revelation that gives you some kind of consistency in interpretation. You can hold to other interpretations and other views, but within those views, the interpretations will often vary wildly. And so this view of the book of Revelation gives some consistency of interpretation and I think gives us a good grid to be able to understand it much like we would understand other books of the Bible and interpret it much like we would interpret other books of the Bible. And so it's my favorite view and the view that I hold to and the view that I personally Uh, teach. And so that's the perspective uh, from which I'm teaching the book of Revelation here. And so Revelation chapter 3 verse 14, we have the final of Jesus's seven letters. And we've basically taken two letters at a time. We took Ephesus and Smyrna, letter one and two together. We took uh, Pergamum and Thyatira, letter three and four together. And we took Sardis and Philadelphia, letter five and six together. And so that leaves us with one final letter. But I think it's appropriate to study this letter in its entirety in one setting or in one uh, go through for the simple reason that I think the church that we find 
most often in the world today is the church in Laodicea. So let's observe it today. It's not a healthy church. It's a very sick church. Let's read of it uh, in verse 14. He says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, before we look at Jesus' description of himself there in verse 14, let's think for a moment about the city of Laodicea. Three things I want you to know about this city. Number one, they were a proud financial center. They were the banking center of that entire region of Asia Minor. In the year of 61 AD, uh, their city had experienced a very strong earthquake, and they rebuffed the offer of government aid and rebuilt the city through their own means and their own finances. And so uh, it was a very uh, proud financial center. All right, and so that's part of what the city was. They had a 30,000 seat amphitheater, they were uh, into entertainment, they were financially very strong. Part of the reason that they were financially powerful and strong was their banking, but another was because they were a proud clothing manufacturer. Uh, there was apparently from this city this uh, glossy black wool that was produced from the local shepherds, the local sheep, and so they were a, an exporter and manufacturer of uh, very sought-after clothing. So they were strong in the fashion industry, strong in the financial industry, strong in the fashion industry. But on top of all of that, they were actually a medical epicenter in, in many senses. They were a proud medical center. Uh, they even on their local coinage, instead of just having politicians and, and uh, Caesars, they had doctors on their local coinage. And so they, they held the medical profession in high esteem. And they were famous for an eye treatment and ear treatment that came through the form of an ointment or a salve. And so proud financially, uh, a proud clothing manufacturer, and a proud medical center. And we'll see how all of these things came into play in Jesus' rebuke of the church in Laodicea. Now also, before we look at the description of Jesus, uh, in the title, there's a slight variation in most of the transcripts. You see, in the other cases, uh, Jesus would say to the angel of the church in Sardis, or the angel of the church in Philadelphia, or in Thyatira, or in Pergamum, or in Ephesus, or in Smyrna. And here, in most of the transcripts, the way it ought to read is, and to the angel of the church of Laodicea. In other words, it's the, the actual church, actually I guess the transcript would say, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. In other words, it seems that inside the city of Laodicea, it's almost like the church had been adopted by the Laodicean people. And so there's, there's some kind of uh, closeness 
and, and uh, connection to the city of Laodicea from the church that is unhealthy. Now, Jesus describes himself very simply as the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of God's creation. The amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of God's creation. This says a lot about Jesus. The amen, it means, you know, when you say amen at the end of a prayer, it means to make firm, to be true. It means, you know, just basically, so be it. And so Jesus is the so be it. He is the thing that is firm and true and solid and sure. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, that all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen. Now, there's just a, a something solid about Jesus. Jesus is sure. But he also describes himself as the faithful and true witness. And of course, this is a picture of the deity of Christ, the faithful and true witness. It, what it means is, is that Jesus is the express image of God. And so because he is the express image of God, he is the one who has faithfully and truthfully expressed and witnessed, testified, so to speak, of who God is. You know, if you were to be in court uh, trying to you know, testify of who God is. You could call up prophets. You could call up priests. You could call up apostles. You could call up Christians. You could call up a lot of different people to testify of who God is and what God is like. But there's one character who would provide the best witness, and that is God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's what makes him the faithful and true witness. And then John also records Jesus referring to himself as the beginning of God's creation. The beginning of God's creation. This means that Jesus is not, it, it does not mean, number one, that Jesus is a part of God's creation. This word literally means the cause, the origin, the leader, and the source, and the ruler of. Jesus is the cause, origin, leader, source, and ruler over God's creation. I think the NIV says that he is the ruler of God's creation in this text. And that would be a great translation. And so we know from other texts, John chapter 1 especially, uh, verse 2, that he uh, was in the beginning but that he was also the creator of all things. So Jesus is the creator God, John chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. And so uh, this gives him a place of prominence and preeminence over all of God's creation. Now this is how Jesus describes himself for the church in Laodicea. And why would Jesus describe himself with these kinds of words to the church in Laodicea? Why would Jesus give himself this description. Well, it's very simple. They were a people who had come to trust themselves. They were a people who had grown lukewarm through their own personal prosperity and not realizing the weakness of their own position. And so what they needed to see is that the firm foundation, the true word, and the faithful God was Jesus, and that they needed to bow to him as their supreme being. 
They had a low view of Jesus, basically, and they needed to have a high view of Christ. And I believe that this, this is one of the, the greatest attributes for a Christian to have, a high view of Christ. Jesus said in the first of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, the person that's poor in spirit, the person that understands their poverty before God, the person that understands that in the sight of God, they are low, that in the sight of God and in, and in comparison to God, better said, they are in complete poverty and weakness. The person that gets that has put in the key to unlock the door to the blessings of God in their lives. But the church in Laodicea, they had a low view of God. They had a view of him that, you know, sure, he's special, he's good, he's great, but they saw themselves in a fairly high and lofty condition. And that perspective needed radical correction from Jesus. And so Jesus says in verse 15, he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, verse 18, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you or vomit you out of my mouth. This is a harsh word from Jesus. It's a rebuke that the people in Laodicea would have easily understood. Now, they had received their water as a city from the springs of Hierapolis, which were six miles away. And so the water would come out piping hot, but of course they wouldn't receive it that way because as the water traveled those six miles, by the time it got to them, it wouldn't be ice cold, of course, but it would be lukewarm. Not a desirable condition uh, for them to drink of that water, but it's the water that they had. And so when Jesus starts speaking about lukewarm water that is neither hot nor cold, they would have understood it. You know, this isn't the desirable condition. And Jesus says to them, he's basically saying, I hate your apathy. He wanted them to be zealous, fervent in spirit and fervent in prayer. Romans 12, 11 and Colossians 4, verse 12. He wanted a people who were vibrant in one way or another. You know, it's like in sports. I remember when I used to play basketball and you'd go to another gym to face another team and You'd be booed and jeered and taunted and all of that. And then when you played in front of your own crowd, you would be cheered and celebrated and uh, rooted for. And it was a wonderful feeling. And really, both of those realities are preferable to playing in a silent gym and atmosphere where no one is cheering and no one is booing and everybody's just sitting there, apathetic, uninterested in the events on the court. And Jesus is saying much the same thing. He's saying, listen, you should be a fervent people one way or another, but you have this lukewarmness that has corrupted your heart. 
And I've found that from time to time, this lukewarmness can creep into my life. But I believe that this lukewarmness is found inside of the American church, especially in a very general sense. I don't want to paint, you know, every single Christian with such a broad brush. But I think that we'd have to say that this seems to be the church that is most prevalent on earth today. You know, a church that loves to listen to sermons and loves to have fervent, passionate worship, but in whom there's a total lukewarmness. There's not a desire to live for him. There's not a desire to prioritize him. There simply is a desire to play church, to have the best church and to have the best meetings, and to walk away full of knowledge and full of points, but without a real passion to serve the Lord. And uh, this for me is what's so wonderful about traveling to the mission field. Because so often in going to the mission field, what do I discover? I discover a church that doesn't have great possessions. They don't have a lot of great resources. But what do they have? They have a passion for Christ. And Jesus looks at the church in Laodicea and he says, Yeah, it's great. It's great that you have all these things. But you've got to know that in my sight, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. You are a lukewarm people. You're missing it. He says of them in verse 17, he says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing, Jesus said, that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. In other words, the church in Laodicea was self-deceived. Self-deception is an absolute killer because there's no way to talk a person out of self-deception. It says in Proverbs 16, verse 2, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. In other words, the church in Laodicea, their self-estimation was simple. We're rich, we've prospered, we have need of nothing. And Jesus looks at them and says, no, you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I've put you on my scales, and this is what I've found. Now, they had a lot of stuff. They had the externals. They perhaps had the sweet building and the great band and all of that. But in reality, they did not have the Spirit of God. In reality, they were spiritually broke. And so Jesus tells them, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus counsels them to make a purchase from him of three specific things. Now, of course, these are mentioned in a spiritual sense and they had deep connection to their city. He says, number one, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Now, like I said earlier, these people were living in a city that was a banking epicenter. They were financially very well off. But Jesus looks at them and he says, listen, number one, you need to purchase from me. You need to buy from me spiritual gold. In other words, you've spent all this time looking for physical riches and celebrating in physical riches and saying, I have need of nothing. But what you need from me more than anything is you need spiritual riches. 
And you know, when you think about life, the reality is what we have here in this life is but a vapor. You know, just a drop in the ocean in comparison to the length of eternity. I love what Paul said and to the Corinthian church. He said, listen, I, I, I desire to live a life that on that last day, that day of judgment, that my works will not burn up with fire. They'll not be like the wood and the hay and the stubble, but they will be like gold and silver and precious stones, elements that endure, elements that last. Storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And there is that possibility. And I think that's lost on many Christians today. The reality that what we'll find when we hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord, is absolutely powerful and is absolutely wonderful. And Jesus says to these people, he says, listen, you need to pursue spiritual riches, eternal riches riches, spiritual wealth. And then he tells them, he says, also, I urge you to buy from me white garments so that you may be clothed and the shame of your nakedness can be covered. Here, Jesus is speaking of spiritual clothing. You know, uh, and as I mentioned, they were very famous in their city for their garment industry, their fashion industry. And Jesus looks at them and says, listen, you think that you are, uh, that you've prospered, that you have need of nothing, but you are poor, blind, and you are naked. Uh, you know, you're in an embarrassing condition. And so I counsel you to come to me to purchase your spiritual clothing. I don't think that he's talking necessarily about the clothing of righteousness as much as he is the clothing, the spiritual clothing that should should be uh, draped around a believer. The fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and self-control to have this flowing from a person's life. Jesus says, come to me to receive those garments. And then he tells them, he says also, I want you to purchase eye salve from me to anoint your eyes so that you may see. In other words, he tells them, you have blindness and you need to receive from me spiritual sight so that you might be able to really see what's truly happening in this world. And that's the thing. When a person gives in to the, the spirit of Laodicea in this world and they allow themselves to you know, be blinded and corrupted by the world and and fall in love with what's here and what's now. When a person gets involved in that, they basically become blinded. They lose their spiritual sight. But we've got to go to Jesus to say, Lord, would you open my eyes? I'm walking in blindness and in darkness, but I long to walk in the light. I want to see. And so Jesus tells them, he says, you need to come to me to purchase your spiritual riches, your spiritual clothing and your spiritual sight. Those whom I love, verse 19, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. It's so wonderful to think of the Lord as one who would discipline us and one who would chasten us because it speaks of his love. You know, when the Lord rebukes us and when the Lord corrects you and when the Lord disciplines you, one thing you need to understand is that 
That is actually not the punishment of God towards you. Jesus consumed our punishment on the cross of Christ. He consumed our judgment on the cross. But what we receive from Jesus is we receive discipline. This, we receive discipline. This speaks of a relationship that Jesus has with us. Like a father to a son being willing to discipline his child. And so whom the Lord loves, he rebukes and chastens. And uh, I know that all too well. The reproving, disciplining, correcting uh, ministry of Jesus Christ. Behold, verse 20, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The church in Laodicea had a wonderful invitation that was given to them. It was very simple. It was Jesus saying that he was standing at the door, that he was knocking. And if they would open up the door, if they would hear his voice, that he would come into them and he would eat with them, that he would dine with them. It's a very simple sequence that Jesus outlines. He's outside. He's desirous of fellowship. And he knocks at the door. And anybody who opens the door, he'll come in and he will eat with them and they with him. This speaks of the reality that Jesus longs to be in fellowship with his people. He wants to know you. He wants to be in fellowship with you. And Jesus is not going to SWAT team you and break down the door in order to gain that fellowship. He is going to gently knock and allow you to be the one to open the door and to invite him in. And I find that every single day, this invitation from Jesus is good. It stands. Every single day, the Lord longs for us to open the door. Every single day, the Lord longs for us to, to open up to him, to have fellowship with him, and to be in his presence. And so Jesus gives an invitation and a glorious promise to say that if we overcome, uh, we will conquer and we will sit with him upon his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And it's actually interesting as we close out this study of the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor to look at the meaning of each one of these cities. Ephesus means darling. And they were the church that had lost their first love. They had lost their darling. Smyrna means myrrh, which was a spice that was useful only when crushed. And the church in Smyrna was persecuted and crushed but a sweet aroma that came from them. The Pergamum means bad marriage, and they had uh, connected with Balaam and had, uh, you know, had bad marriages. Thyatira speaks of continual sacrifice, and uh, they had sacrificed in an, in an ungodly way. Sardius means remnant. And there was a remnant inside of that time of death in the Sardis church. Philadelphia means brotherly love. 
you know, and they were a faithful church, uh, full of love and grace, and Laodicea to be ruled by the people. And this speaks of the apostate church that is dominated not by the things of God, but by the things of man. And to me, I do think that you see this flow throughout the course of church history over the last 2,000 years. And I expect that the Lord will return sometime soon for his people. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.